get going. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 2. Got a good jump on Philippians chapter 2 Sunday morning. I want to get right back to it here tonight. Uh, Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to prepare our hearts for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this evening thankful for your faithfulness, thankful, Father, that uh, when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. I thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to obey your command. You order us to present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Father, that's a command that's just fun to obey, because we get to study, we get to learn, we get to grow. Thank you so much for uh, the truth of your word and for a lampstand as the word goes forth, for brothers and sisters that make the word of God a priority. Father, uh, we call upon you tonight to be faithful, to lead us in the truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We do want to start just a few minutes for some Q&A time. We made a tradition of this a while back and it's now uh, locked in. So uh, do we have a microphone ready? Got a microphone ready? All right. So uh, I'll take a question from the floor in a moment, but before that, there was an email question that came in. Lewis wanted to know, regarding John 20, 22, is, is what the disciples received in this event the same thing discussed in John 16, 33 and 1 Corinthians 2, 12? What was left for them to receive on Pentecost? And so, yeah, this is an interesting, um, this is uh, Easter Sunday, this is the night in which he was raised, and uh, he appears in the upper room, scares the, you know, the, will- the willies out of him because they thought you know, the doors were locked, and, and, that. and then he just pops in, our Savior pops in, and, and he reveals himself to them, and uh, they're terrified in that. But uh, then when he says this, he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. All right, so what's that, right? Because this is, this is uh, Sunday night, April 5th, and, and the day of Pentecost doesn't come until, uh, until May, right? Until May 24th. So what, what is this Holy Spirit then that they get on this night? And is it the same as what He promised? Because in John 16 He promised, you know, when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come to you. Okay, well, this isn't the same as that promise because He hasn't left yet. He hasn't ascended yet. He, he, he ascends, you know, 40 days after the resurrection. So um, anyway, this is different. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And this is on, like I say, it's on the night that he was raised. And it'll be a week later then uh, that he comes back and he gives them a, a, basically the same message a second time because Thomas was missing the first time. And then uh, Thomas shows up for the, the time a week later. So anyway, it's, um, it's not the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we understand it because that happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's not the church age receiving of the Holy Spirit because they're not in the church age yet. Uh, I understand this to be comparable to something, anything in the Old Testament when, when the Holy Spirit would come upon one of the prophets or the Holy Spirit would come upon one of the judges or uh, the Spirit would come upon uh, Samson and he'd have this great strength and go you know, do stuff. Uh, so uh, that's what I think happened is that Jesus gave them the Old Testament kind of Holy Spirit for those 40 days, for the 40 days of His resurrection ministry. And then He ascended and then they were spiritless again until... Uh, Pentecost 10 days later. 
all right? And then the Holy Spirit descended, and they never lost it after that. Because remember, in the church age, the Holy Spirit is permanent. It's a permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit for, uh, for church age saints. So anyway, that was uh, an email that came in. Does that answer everything? Okay. And so we are ready for new questions tonight. And we'll start with Bill. Um, when I had sent you an email a couple of days ago asking about uh, believers as being a new spiritual species uh, in regards to the difference between Israel and the church age, where are some of the... I never saw that. I'm sorry. Oh, well, no, I had sent an email because uh, I was asking you about um, us being new creations. Uh-huh. And I had mentioned about being new spiritual species of being a separation from Israel. Right, Second Corinthians 5. From now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. That's the email you were talking about? Yeah. But in, uh, because in Christ we are now a new creation. Right. right. Uh-huh. Um, is there any other verses that we can look at for that new spiritual creation? Ah, that's the biggest one right there. Is there another one besides that one? Um, I did a search and I couldn't find anything. Right. So, so therefore, from this is Second Corinthians five sixteen. We recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and of course you're studying this because your message in January is going to be on in Christ, the positional truth of uh, our union with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And uh, it looks like there's a cross-reference little b. Do you ever click on these little b things? The a's, the b's, the c's? Those are sometimes useful. They're not God-breathing inspired, but they're sometimes <laughs> useful and sometimes not useful. And so, you know, just read with caution. Um, Galatians 6.15, how about that? Neither a circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So if you want to get into a Jew-Gentile fight, forget that. We're a new creation in Christ, right? Galatians 6.15. How about Romans 6.4? The newness of life. Though we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, that so as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. That newness might connect well in in your idea of a new creation. And... uh, and that. So yeah, I'd start with those. Yeah, these little uh, superscript letters, those are for cross-references, and there's usually one or two or three every time you see a little blue letter there. And uh, of course, in your paper Bible, you've got to actually look at them up and flip pages and see in the software, you just hover your mouse and it, and it tells you what they are. And if those aren't enough cross-references, have you ever heard of R.A. Torrey and the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge? Well, let me tell you, I've got, I use this so much, I have a, a button on my toolbar that says, show me Tori's cross-references, because here's Tori's cross-references, and if, if those little letters in your Bible give you one or two or three, R.A. Tori will give you eight or ten or twenty, wow. and, uh, you know, he spent 50 years of his life just doing this, and, and that was... And, and still blessing us to this day, 100 years later. He was in the early 20th century. So I recommend the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge if you really want to become a cross-reference um, animal. <laughs> That's a place to go. Yes, sir. I, I just have one more. Um, in regards to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, mm-hmm. those were mandates upon how like, the Israelites would serve God 
in what we would call now the old covenant in the way that we serve God as Christians in the new covenant. By old covenant, you're talking about the Mosaic law? Yes. That, that Israel received at Mount Sinai? Okay. Because, you know, um, uh, yes, that was their conditional covenant they were given when they were birthed as a nation. And that was the covenant they operated under during their theocracy of the Old Testament. The new covenant, by the way, they've never operated under it. It's still promised. It's still future. Uh, Jesus shed the blood of the new covenant on the cross, but that blood has not been applied to the nation Israel yet. That doesn't happen until the second advent. And so in, in the millennium, then, they will operate under the new covenant that they've never operated on yet. So we as believers today operate under the new covenant. Ooh, that's a long discussion. And that's, uh, the, the, uh, many pastors would say yes, and grace notes might say yes. Uh, I do not say yes. And that's something I taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are equipped as media, as, as uh, servants of the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, but the new covenant is still waiting for second advent to go into effect. So if you're a servant of something that's not in effect yet, then um, it's, it's not in effect yet. Okay? And so we will get there when we get there. Until then, we're, we're being prepared for that, even as Jesus was prepared for that. His whole earthly life was preparing him to be the mediator of the new covenant. Our whole earthly life is pre- preparing us to be ministers of that new covenant when we come back with Christ at the second advent. All right, I need to correct my notes. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I'll get you a book too. Uh, Christopher Cohn wrote a book about three years ago on the new covenant, and it's, it's outstanding. Yeah. In fact, we may be covering that in PMW classes starting in January. Yeah. All right, let's come up here for our next question. Well, you guys came prepared tonight. This is great. All right. Okay, so this is a pop quiz on Glenn's okay. lecture. Okay, he talked about world's viewpoint, and he said pantheism and polytheism and monotheism, and then he said rationalism, and rationalism was the worship of the tools of creation. Oh. I didn't get an example on what that was. So like I a non-theistic, atheistic? Um, oh, atheistic. It's an atheistic philosophy, yeah, worldview that just exalts human rationality and denies any, any creator. Any, it's an atheistic worldview. Okay, cool, Thanks. I'm pretty sure that's what he was talking about. I wasn't here that day. That's when Glenn was filling in for me? Yeah. I was goofing off? Yes. Okay, yeah. I thought you'd listen to it and could it uh, fully... I got kind of busy in the last week or so. I have not heard Glenn yet. All right, excellent questions. Appreciate those. All right, let me give a last call. We've got uh, three minutes remaining, and then uh, Q&A time will be done. Going once, going twice. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That's my question. Do you have a question? Okay. Oh. Okay. Yes, you have a belly button. I'm glad. Yeah, but Adam and Eve, did they have belly buttons? Exactly, yeah. All right. Okay, thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. Join me then in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to return to our ifs. If you care to, you may turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at some ifs, okay? The Greek language is amazing because if is so rich in all the different ways it can be used, and, and honestly, we can do something similar in English, uh, but we're not, maybe we don't do it as frequently, we don't do it as often. We are able to use if in a variety of different ways, it's just we, we tend not to. Um, the Greeks used them all the time. They were constantly using ifs, and it was, it was kind of, it was a facet of their language. I think it was also a, uh, really a reflection of their, of their society, a reflection on how 
the Greeks viewed themselves as thinkers and how they viewed themselves um, logically in, in that regard. And so as we look at the ifs here in Philippians 2.1, there's four of them, and they're all being used in exactly the same way. They're all first-class condition. They're all assumed to be true. And so as we cross from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we have a therefore, which really encompasses the conclusion to chapter 1, that we are suffering for Christ's sake. It has been granted, when you kind of take a peek up to 129, we'll notice, uh, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, right? And you know, you could get a show of hands, all kinds of people are really happy to be saved, but what goes with that? suffering for his sake and both are being granted by god's grace and so uh yes the the grace of god has saved us and the grace of god has also assigned us the suffering that we have for the sake of christ and that uh is a blessing so um it says then in verse 30 experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me and so it's the same conflict you see the apostle paul go through it and then your turn comes along. And so you say, all right, thank you, Father. It's the same conflict. It's not weird. It's not, you know, it's, it's normal. And we should be thankful that, uh, that we're counted worthy of such. And that then is the basis for the therefore. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. And that's what we're looking at. That's how we can learn how to complete other people's joy uh, from of course paul's not around anymore but we can we have us we have uh you know pastors and missionaries and other believers and so forth if you see someone with an incomplete joy then uh, you can you're now going to be equipped to be able to complete their joy and uh, this passage shows us how to do that so uh, i'm looking forward to this now we barely got a start on it let me just review some of the slides of what we covered on sunday uh, first of all kind of a big picture on the chapter. This chapter has three exhortations in the first half and then travel plans in the second half of the chapter. Um, Chapter 2 features three exhortations and some travel arrangements. Uh, The exhortations are follow-ups to the closing exhortation of chapter 1. And we we took a peek at that already. Um, Although I didn't read verse 27 tonight. It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the exhortation that closed chapter 1. And so that idea of worthiness then gets brought into chapter 2 with the three exhortations that we have here. These are follow-ups to the closing exhortation of chapter 1. And so we start with, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Okay? And we're going to have some fun with this. And we're going to, uh, I'll probably use my dirty, hairy voice as much as I can to like the, you know, go ahead, punk, make my day, you know, something like that. And, but we want to make my joy complete. And that's what the scripture says here. And uh, the conclusion to this leads right to the second one. As soon as we're done with make my joy complete, we then get in verse 3 and verse 4, there's a couple of do nots, do nots, and then think this way. Think this way in verse 5. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. So the imperative here in this exhortation is have this attitude. God holds us accountable for how we think. God holds us accountable for our attitude. If we have the wrong attitude, we've got to check it. We've got to get the right attitude. And the right attitude is the attitude that Jesus Christ had, that He exemplified, that He modeled for us as an example for us to follow. And so that'll be verses 3 through 11. 
Then uh, the third exhortation is work out your salvation. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it says. All right? And that one's powerful also because, I, you know, like I say, a lot of folks are happy to be saved and then they don't really want to do much beyond that other than just kind of sit around and you know, go to heaven when they die. You know, they're saved, they're happy to be saved, but to, the, to, to them, I mean, really, what, what is salvation? It's kind of like a, you know, it's like a fire insurance policy. You know, you want to have fire insurance, cause, but you never want to use it, right? You want to you have fire insurance in case your house burns down. But honestly, who wants their house to burn down? So you have the fire insurance and you don't ever want to use it. And, and salvation, you know, fire insurance, haha, get it? You don't want to go to hell when you die. So nobody wants to go to hell when they die. But they don't really want to use it. I mean, they don't want, they don't, yeah, eventually they want to go to heaven, but not, not today, not now. We're having fun. They're living life. They're living in the world. And that's the problem, see, that kernel-mindedness. Now we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and uh, for it is God who's at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I tell you, the more you surrender to this, the more you get on board with what God's doing in your life, um, it, it becomes, a, it becomes a, a test. It's a humility test because sometimes God's inconvenient. You know, Sometimes we'd rather if God got on board with what we were doing. <laughs> right? Come on God, I want to do this. Instead, he's at work. And he expects us to say, not our will, but thine be done. Okay, Jesus prayed that in the garden and, and, and we understand that. So we'll get to that third exhortation as well in verses 12 through 18. And total coincidence, by the way, Christopher pointed this out to me, these are the exact same verse divisions we had in chapter 1. We had verses 1 and 2, we had verses 3 through 11, we had verses 12 through 18, and then we had verses 19 through 30. I can't explain it. It's just... Um, a miracle. All right. But that's how we've uh, divided this chapter also. When we get to the travel arrangements, then um, in verses 19 through 30, they're kind of out of order. The early verses are going to talk about Timothy in, uh, in 19 through 23. It's about Timothy. And then in verse 24, Paul says, oh, and I'm hoping I can come also. Uh, so it includes, Paul includes himself in that. And then in verses 25 through 30, he says, in the meantime, before Timothy gets there, I'm sending you Epaphroditus. And most likely, Epaphroditus is the one that carries the scroll. So by the time they're reading Philippians, Epaphroditus is already there, that he was the one that was sent to carry that scroll uh, in, uh, in that way. All right. So that's kind of a big picture on where the chapter is going. We're going to start, though, with uh, the make my joy complete. And remember, it's all about suffering for Christ's sake. That's how chapter 2 ended. Suffering for Christ's sake. And we, we, I can't emphasize that enough. It's as heartbreaking the way Christ's sake becomes a swear word, right? You hit your, hand, your thumb with a hammer and you say, oh, for Christ's sake, right? No. <laughs> Don't use it that way. Don't take the Lord's name in vain like that, okay? Suffering is for Christ's sake and we need to identify with it appropriately. And it's the common conflict with Paul. It's the common aspect of our salvation. It's what equips us to understand one another and love one another. We're more tender towards one another, more compassionate. We're able to come alongside in prayer. Why? Because we get it. We understand this suffering. We, we, we suffer too. And uh, we all suffer. And that's uh, a part of uh, how these things come together. Anyway, the, the uh, 
suffering for Christ's sake and the experiencing common conflict. This is the basis for these three exhortations that start chapter 2. And we've got little helping words like the therefore in verse 1 and the so then in verse 12 and other idioms and expressions that help us to link these verses that all point back to doctrine that was already covered, to principles that were already, already dealt with. Anyway, connect the chapters and, and I think we do okay. Then uh, under point two, we start looking at our ifs. Four of them. If, 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 if. Okay? Four of them. And all four are true. All four are in the first class condition assumed to be true. Uh, for the sake of the argument, or as the, the case may be, in reality they are true. And that's what's happening here. All four ifs are first class conditional clauses all assumed to be true. And sometimes uh, you might find, especially maybe 50 years ago, it was kind of trendy, pastors were, would, would tell their flock, uh, since it's a first-class condition and since we know it's true, then we can use the word since as an English uh, translation instead of if. And instead of using if, let's just use since. We, can, we, we know it's true. Well, we're backing off from that. Younger pastors or newer pastors are backing off from that because there are first-class conditions that are assumed to be true, but they are not true. And it's, it's wrong. It's, in, it's inappropriate to use the word since with something that's not factually true. And so even if you're going to assume it for the sake of argument, it's better to use the word assuming. Okay? So don't use the word since. Use the word assuming. Okay? And now I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about. And I can move on. But we dealt with this on Sunday and went through a lot of these first class conditions. All assumed to be true for argument's sake. And they might not be. Case in point is the one where Jesus said, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, then who, by whom do your sons cast them out? Right? And Jesus used that. He used a first class condition, assumed it to be true. He said, hey, assuming that I'm casting out demons by Beelzebul's power, well, we know Jesus wasn't doing that. The Scripture tells us He wasn't doing that. But He, he goes ahead and He says, okay, for the sake of argument, let's say this is what I'm doing. Alright? And, and to me, that's, that becomes um, useful. That's, a, that's a, a rhetorical device. That's a, that's a debating technique. That's a way to go ahead and say, all right, well, if, you're, if what you're telling me is true, then where does that leave us? Okay? And, and sometimes you can do that. You can do that with an atheist. You can do that with a big banger. You can do that with any, you know, anybody in their, in their flawed carnal views and say, is that where we want to go? Really? Okay, let's just assume... And, and then take it to its logical extent and say, if that's true, do you realize what that means? Do you realize where, where that's going to take us? It's going to take us a place we don't want to go. And so if, if you can get that person to see that, then sometimes it causes them to rethink things and, and imagine, you know, well, maybe my assumption's wrong. And, you know, so good luck with that. <laughs> okay. I don't do well with debates, and I find most folks that I debate with. They're not interested in information or debates or facts. It's, it's all emotional and whatever. So that's not, a, that's not a logical exercise at that point. You just say, okay, well, I'll pray for you. And there you go. But there's some others, and, and I'm not going to reteach this, this slide, but on Sunday we went through this. Remember the, the temptation of Matthew 4? When Satan came to Jesus, he used first-class conditions of if. He said, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. And, and that if that Satan used was a first-class condition, assumed it to be true. And Satan knew it was true. And so 
there's the example there. I love the one in Galatians 5, you know, where we walk by the flesh and or the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And uh, that's a guarantee. We have the first class here. Uh, there's a first class in Colossians 3.1 I use in all my baptism services. If you have been raised up with Christ, therefore if you have been raised up with Christ, and let's just assume for this discussion you have been, you're a believer, then here's what you need to do. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know, if, if you've been raised up with Christ, why are you so earthly minded? You're seated at the Father's right hand. You're in the heavenly places. Anyway, that's a, that's a powerful use. And, and that's why I like it. I, I like the fact that it's a way to say something even stronger than just saying it. You can just say, well, if, right? And just lay it out there. Okay? And, and you know, there's probably some carnal examples of this too. You know, there's, there's just different. You can, you can do this, right, with, with somebody you know, and you know, you could, you know, if you loved me, you would, right? You get, you get that? Now that's manipulative and probably wrong depending on the context, but you understand how powerful that is. Well, if, you see, and then you just leave it with them. And uh, what are they going to say at that point? So it becomes a, a useful device. There's another particle besides A uh, is, is aper. You can, you can strengthen the A by turning into aper. And this is, a, this is an if, but it's an if indeed. If indeed, right? So if and it's true, if and it's very true, if and of course it's true, indeed. Uh, and that's in uh, Romans 8 9 where you have that. And, and some of those indeed kind of translations are, are useful. Uh, Romans 8 9 says, however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Right? It's kind of a Greek way of saying duh, okay? If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. I mean, is the Holy Spirit living in you? Hey, guess what? You're saved. Right? Figure that out. And uh, But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's what it comes down to. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Are you still lost in this dying world? Going to hell? What for? And the, the, the provision of the gospel has been made so that we can receive Christ and receive eternal life. And that's uh, the statement there. Alright, so in the first class the if is true. In the second class the if is not true. If is not true. And this is, uh, oftentimes these are very sad messages. Oftentimes these are very um, uh, they're laments because the, the speaker realizes that it doesn't have to be this way. That it could have been otherwise. You know, if that, then this would have. It's got a, it's got a lot of would have's in the uh, in the apodosis. and so it's an if then clause. So it's a logical statement. You've got a protasis, You've got an apodosis, All of these are, are structured that way. Uh, but the if clause is assumed as not true. Okay, so if you would have done something, if something would have happened, or if something would not have happened, okay, how would um, you know what would. Uh, just pick a political example or whatever. You know what would, what would, uh, what would, what would World War II have been like if the Japanese had not a- attacked Pearl Harbor? Okay, uh, what would have? You know, it's, it's something that's not true. But if it would have been true, okay, what if Lee would have won Gettysburg? Okay, um, you know things like that. And so we use them all the time. The Bible uses them all the time. And so it's a it's a argument that's uh, not true. And, uh, and yet it's presented 
for the, uh, for the argument's sake. So um, in this you have A, E, I, plus the uh, a past tense in the indicative, and then on plus the past tense indicative. And uh, several New Testament examples of that. If the miracles that were done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have repented. See, if the Capernaum miracles had been done there. And that's, that's God in His omniscience telling us what these uh, could-have, would-haves, and should-haves would have resulted in had they happened, right? And that becomes, by the way, that's a whole message of its own. That's a whole series of its own to understand God's omniscience and how He knows every reality and every potentiality, everything that might be. See, what if I hadn't met Sharon? Or what if she said no when I asked her to marry me? Or what if I never became a pastor? Or what if, you know, all these things. If this choice was a different choice back then, how different would, would, this, uh, would this world be, right? Some of that is going to come up tomorrow night in uh, the funeral service. I don't know, I may not get into some of that. But I love how Glenn met Nan. To me, that's a marvelous story. Because Glenn was not a believer. And, uh, and, and there was a girl he liked, and she said, well, you, if you come to church with me, oh, we'll get coffee afterwards, right? So she took him to Bracket Church, where he got saved, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, then, and then he ends up not marrying her, he ends up marrying a roommate, okay? Because God's in charge, and he overrules all this good stuff. Anyway, um, the, the ifs and the would-haves, and this would have been the result, God's in charge of all of that. And uh, and thank, uh, thank God for that, that he's got sovereign control. All right, which now gets us to the third class. First class is true, second class is not true, third class. This is the one that could go either way. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, all right? It's, the, it's entirely potential, it's entirely volitional. God lays it out there as a fork in the road. And he says, all right, here it is. But if you do this, then... Okay, and, and clearly, if you don't, <laughs> then, right? And the, the one we know the best, of course, is 1 John 1, 9, but there's also one in 1 John 1, 8. There's also one in 1 John 1, 10. There's three of them in, 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 in 8, 9, and 10. They're in 1 John chapter 1. And so let's start there. Let's take, let's take these out of order. 1 John chapter 1. Taking a risk here. Taking my slide out of order. But I think we know this, these verses, and I think we know them very well. All right. Some of, and it's fun. Look at all these other ifs that we have and ask yourself, well, what kind of if is that? What kind of if is that? If we walk in the light, what kind of if is that? And then if we say, and uh, many of these are first-class conditions until we get to verse 8. If we say, that we have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right? And that one is specifically delineated as a third class condition. It leaves it as a potential. It leaves it as maybe we will, maybe we won't. And it expresses it in, in the subjunctive mood, by the way. It's, it's aeon plus the subjunctive. Okay? So remember the second class, you had a and then you had on. Here they're blended together with an aeon particle. An aeon plus the subjunctive is your huge clue that you're dealing with a third class condition. You're dealing with a maybe you will, maybe you won't. And that's what we see here. So if we say we have no sin, some people do. Okay? We shouldn't. But if we do, we're deceiving ourselves. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's stated as a third class condition. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Because, hey, let's be honest, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we delay a little bit. Sometimes we know we should, but we're kind of having fun with this particular sin, so let's do a little bit more. All right? And that's even worse, because then we get more divine discipline (laughs) piled on top. We should have confessed right when we knew we were carnal, right? And we're just making it worse the longer we wait. So sometimes we confess, sometimes we don't. But if we do, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Okay? Now, what does this mean? Does this mean He's not faithful if we don't confess our sins? No, He's still faithful. But we're not yet forgiven. We're not yet restored to fellowship. We're not yet placed in that right fellowship uh, circumstance that we would have otherwise when we confess our sins. Likewise, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Again, third class condition. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. There are times that we do. And when we do, this is what we face. So that's, those are the, the good examples there. I think we're familiar with those. Um, as far as these other ones go, Matthew 4 and 9, back to Matthew 4 again. Should have covered this when we covered the other ones. Matthew 4 and 9. Remember, um, in the first temptation, it was a first class. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. In the second class condition, it's again the first class. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, both of those are first class conditions. Now on this third one, it's a third class condition. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, right? And he says, uh, all these things I will give you if, third class condition. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And just lays it out there, leaving it with Jesus and his volition to pass the test or, or fail. And, and really, I mean, what was Satan thinking? <laughs> I don't, how, how temptable was Jesus? Okay? I believe his deity is not temptable, but humanity? Was there a potential there for humanity to be tempted? Satan thought so. He was going at it. So that's presented then as a third class condition. Maybe yes, maybe no. And, you know, um, thank God he resisted and said no and <laughs> answered with Scripture. Every one of these was answered with Deuteronomy. And I said, oh no, 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 no. Jesus said, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. You know, so maybe yes, maybe no, but as far as Jesus is concerned, of course not. Heck no. You know, why, why would Jesus do that? See, and so this is. I, I think this is useful. We can consider this. This this ought to be, you know, temptation's not a sin. If if an idea pops into your head that ooh, I could I could do that, right? Whatever, I could steal a cookie out of the cookie jar or whatever. There's a, there's a temptation, and it crosses your mind that you could do it, and then it crosses your mind a second time that it would be fun to do it, and it crosses your mind a third time that. You're not going to get caught if you do it, okay? And it's like every time it crosses your mind, why are you playing with that? Why is the idea, why are you even, you know, but I think the idea is, is that as we consider the temptation, we want to be able to apply scripture and say, no, 
Yeah, I could, but why would I? Yeah, I could, but Jesus told me not to. Yeah, I could, but there's consequences, right? And, uh, and there it is. So the things that we talk about when it comes to temptation. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. More of these ifs that are up in the air. Maybe yes, maybe no. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But if it is, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But if it is, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. All right, and so there's actually three ifs in those two verses, uh, all in the third class condition. Uh, how about uh, John eight thirty one? John eight thirty one. <laughs> I tell you, I love this verse. I use this verse a lot. <coughs> Um, people that I debate with, uh, people that hold a different theological view um, don't have an answer for this verse. And so they dance around it. They deny it says what it says. They, they have a theology that can't accept it, so they have a theology that modifies some of the other verses that lead up to it, like verse 30. Um, but Jesus has a message here in, in this chapter, and as He's preaching, folks are getting saved. It says in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him, right? That's what it says. And you'll meet the people that will tell you, well, that's not what it means, okay? But Jesus thought that's what it meant because that's who he starts talking to in verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, right? So there's still a crowd around, there's still a large crowd around, including a whole bunch of rejectors and haters and and unbelievers but within that group are some that believed in him. So now Jesus said, if, and this is a third class condition, okay? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. And this is true for every believer. There's a whole lot of people that are saved. They're going to go to heaven when they die, but they are not disciples today because they're not, they're not doing the if here. They're not abiding in the word of God. So it says, if you continue in my word, that's abide, remain, dwell, the verb is meno, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now realize that disciple is not a synonym for believer. We know they're believers because of verse 30 and 31. They're the Jews that believed in him. But being a believer does not mean you're a disciple. You have to be a believer and abide in the Word of God. If you abide in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Okay? Freedom doesn't come simply by being saved. Freedom, true freedom, comes by being saved and living in the Word of God, abiding in the Word of God. Then a true disciple is truly free, free from sin, free from the sin temptations. We're not talking about the penalty of sin, we're talking about the power of sin. We're talking about a freedom day by day, moment by moment, experientially. That freedom, are we clear on that? This, I, I, maybe I need to draw more pictures because this is, this is, to me, this is, um, can I do this? Nope, can't do that, that goes the wrong way. Let me 
I want to do this. And I want to do this. I want to do this. Because I have a new toy. No, don't do that. And that one was fun. I'm not going to do that one. That was Proverbs. Let's do a new one. Here we go. Let's do this one. All right. Can I draw? I can draw. All right. Because... Isn't that cool? All right. Now this is, the sad thing is, and we love the cross, we love being saved, and this is, this is marvelous for you and for me. Um, this is this point, right? For me it was a Saturday morning in September of 1973, and my mother sat me down at the table, she took me to 1 John chapter 5, and she led me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I placed my faith in Christ, I received eternal life. And so that's our positional truth. This is, what, uh, this is what's going to be taught, uh, what Bill's going to teach on January 7th, being in Christ. And so this is our position. And so much of what we study in terms of our position is, is powerful, it's marvelous, we, want, we don't want to neglect it, but it's not all there is, right? Because beyond salvation is what? Experience. And so we have to look at so many of these uh, doctrines positionally, but also experientially. And that's true for justification, it's true for sanctification, it's true for so many doctrines. We want to understand them positionally, we want to understand them experientially. And so here we're saved by faith, right? Well, how do we walk? By faith, okay? And so there's the positional faith, there's the experiential faith, And we need to understand how these things then come together. Because what Jesus is saying here, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He's not speaking positionally. He's not telling a bunch of unbelievers that if they just got saved, they're going to be free. He's telling believers that if they abide in His Word, they will be disciples and they will be free. And it's free in their experience. Okay? And so that becomes important. And then ultimately, of course, we're headed for heaven and we're going to receive a crown. All right. Thank you for not laughing. I was not an art major. Um, But in between the position and then the experience and then the ultimate. Right? The ultimate sanctification, the ultimate justification, the ultimate glorification. And, uh, and the Bible will address all three. The Bible will use saved to refer to that event. The Bible will use saved to refer to the experiential events. The Bible will use saved to refer to our arrival in heaven. Nan Carnegie was saved last Thursday in the ultimate sense, brought into the personal presence of Jesus Christ. Of course, she was saved here you know, back in the 1950s right? And uh, she was saved here repeatedly, again and again and again and again. Every time the Word of God comes alive in your thinking and reminds you of the truth that sets you free. And so these things, uh, if you grasp this, I can't tell you, this is, you can teach it in 10 minutes, but you can spend years just meditating and learning and growing and developing this 
in, uh, in so many different ways. We talk about the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. That's another good way to outline it, okay? And a lot of pastors use that because it's PPP and it's easy to remember. The penalty of sin, that's taken care of at the cross. I'm not going to go to hell when I die. The penalty of sin is paid for. But there still remains the power of sin. And if we deny that, I think we don't do our kids any service. We've got to tell them that. Sin has power. And even though the penalty is paid for, and even though you're going to go to heaven when you die, there is still a power you've got to fight every day. Are you going to stay in fellowship? Are you going to go carnal? Are you going to fail in the temptation? Because that power is going to get a hold of you if you don't fight it. And so to be saved from the power of sin. That's why it's with humility we receive the word implanted that is able to save your souls. That's all the experiential use right there. And then the very presence of sin. That's when we can leave this dead body of sin behind and take our new body in glory and be removed eternally from the presence of sin. We will never have a sin body again. So that's that's the fun thing there. Okay, well I'm going to save that. And uh, in fact, I would, I'm going to find a way to take that page and uh, make a shortcut on my desktop maybe. Anyway. Because I mean, do you seriously want to watch me draw that every single time? I could just... Could just I mean I might I might improve if I if I drew it more often. All right. My daughters are artists and that just floors me because they must get that from their mom. They don't get that from me. But all right. So uh, that's John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, okay, and some do and some don't. Honestly. And uh, many that don't, they're not disciples. They're going to be in heaven forever, but they're not disciples today. And uh, like I say, unless, you know, there are schools of theology that reject all this, of course. They make saved the same thing as a disciple, and, and every believer has to persevere because their doctrine says that. And, uh, and so uh, if, if they don't, then they weren't saved to begin with. They were never truly saved. They just made a, a profession, they were faking it, or they wanted to be saved, but they weren't elect. So... Um, Anyway, that's, that's not our doctrine, okay? We're good with this. This is, uh, this is the idea that not every saved, regenerate person is a disciple because you've got to abide in the Word of God. And that's, that's, uh, that takes effort. That takes, that's a struggle. That's agonology. That's the Bible. That's a, that's, that takes effort at work. It hurts, okay? Yeah, it does. Take up your cross and follow Him. That's what we're called to do. All right, how about 1 Corinthians 13? And this one's fun. Um, you say, yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, that's my, that's my love magnet, right? I've got the knickknack on my refrigerator. I've got the great love thing there in my kitchen. Well, these are actually the early verses before you get to the, to the love stuff. Um, verses 1, 2, and 3, okay? I'm guessing your kitchen knickknack starts with verse 4, with, right? With love is patient, love is kind. All right. But we have these third-class condition ifs that are phrased here in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. And they're, they're remarkable in what they communicate because they, they, they communicate an if that can't possibly be true because it's such an extreme, but it still is painted as an if. So, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So that's a third-class condition. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. And all of these are um, extremes. We'll, we'll notice this. 
um, speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You know, when you, when you go and you study the gift of tongues, what languages did they speak in the gift of tongues, right? They spoke human languages, and they spoke a variety of human languages. But it's not really clear that every tongues person was speaking every language. It kind of seemed like each tongues person was speaking a language, right? So this tongues person was speaking French, this tongues person sp- was speaking Spanish, this tongues person, you see what I'm saying? But now this if is laying it out there saying, Paul said, hey, what if I have omnilingualism, I, I speak everything, every language, including, because human languages aren't enough, what if I get to speak angel languages too? Okay? And so he's just carrying it to this extreme. And I think by doing that, he's hitting the Corinthians where it hurts, because some of them were very schismatic in their tongues usage and they were, they were causing problems. Um, and none of them were speaking angel, okay? So, so Paul kind of threw that out there as a, uh, as a, as a thing. So if, even if, and yet I do not have uh, love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he throws it out there as an if, maybe I will, maybe I won't, but he makes it so extreme, right? Like if I win the lottery next week, you know the odds of that? Okay, anyway. And I don't think I even have to buy a ticket, by the way. I don't spend money on lottery tickets. I don't think it decreases my odds any. Uh, It's just (laughs) (laughs) mathematically, I mean, statistically, it's about the same. Uh, Because I I notice there's there's trash in the streets. There's 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 discarded slips of paper in the in the gutter, and and you know someone could buy a winning lottery ticket and then drop it, and then the wind can blow it into my driveway, (laughs) and then I can walk out my driveway and I can see oh there's a lottery ticket, well maybe it's a winning ticket and pick it up right, it could happen. It's just you know, and and honestly I don't think it's any statistically it's about the same as buying tickets as far as your odds of winning. And so Paul does that. How about verse 2? If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. (laughs) I mean, there were some pretty powerful prophets throughout the Old Testament, but none of them were omniscient. You know? But this is where he carries it to. He carries it to the extreme. What if I have the gift of prophecy to the point that I know everything. I know all mysteries, have all knowledge, I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Okay? So he carries these to the extreme. And of course, even then, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And so Paul uses these devices. He's going to do the opposite of this in Philippians. Okay? Uh, and so I, I enjoy it. I'm glad we're seeing this tonight. Because here he's using the big example. I know everything. I have, all, I have all of this. Without love, it's nothing. Okay? When we get to Philippians, he uses the small example. He uses the microscopic example. If there is any consolation, if there is any comfort, if there is any affection or compassion, right? Even the smallest amount if there's a micro, nano, whatever, tiny little subatomic amount. Because he says any. If there is any affection and compassion. And so he goes to that extreme in Philippians by emphasizing even the smallest amount, the tiniest little bit. Well, he's doing the opposite here. He's uh, saying if there is any. All right, verse 3. 
1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the, the poor. Okay? I mean, there's some pretty impressive believers with the gift of giving, but who with the gift of giving gives everything? Paul says, hey, what if I did that? And if I surrender my body to be burned, I'm going to lay it down there as a martyr, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So anyway, this is what he does. And this is, this is three verses, and all of these are third class condition. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But even if I do, without love, there's no point. Why do such a thing? Why do such a thing? And so that's, that's the impact on that. All right. And then the fourth class. Fourth class condition. All right. So it's also a potential, but it's really, uh, nah. Okay. It's, uh, the, the, the potential in the third class is actually pretty positive. The potential in the third class is laid out there as an if you do this, then this. And yes, it's still potential. Yes, it's left in your, in your volition. But still, they're always presented on a, on a basis that it's something you can do. You can confess your sins. You should confess your sins. And if you do this, here's the consequences. And so the, 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 the if is possible and expected or likely in, in the third class. In the fourth class, it's the opposite. Yes, it's possible okay? Yeah, you might win the lottery, right? I mean, somebody does, okay? Might be you. So the if clause is possible as to fulfillment, but it is so remote. It is so remote, it's not expected at all, okay? And, and this is formed with uh, A in the, uh, plus the optative. There are not many optative verbs in the, in the New Testament. Um, the optative, by the time we get to the Koine era of the New Testament, the optative is largely obsolete, not really used. Um, and then uh, in the, uh, the conclusion, you have A plus the optative in the protesis, and then in the apotesis, you have on again plus the optative. And so they're expressed as wishes, as, and yeah, be nice, um, but the, the speaker isn't really expecting it. Now, there are no true classical fourth class conditions anywhere in the New Testament. Okay? Like I said, by the time you get to the, to the, you can find some in the Septuagint, you can find some in classical Greek, but by the time you get to the first century, this has really fallen off in, in, in Greek, in Koine Greek usage. Uh, instead, they tend to use a lot of subjunctives instead of optatives. They tend to have functional equivalents, and, and they're pretty clear to tell in context. And so uh, Luke 1, these are the equivalents, and, and, and Luke uses them. And I think in Luke 1 and Acts 8, Acts 17, Acts 20, remember Luke was classically trained. Uh, Luke's Greek is far more polished than anybody else's Greek in the New Testament. And so you might expect if somebody in the New Testament is going to use a, a fourth class condition, then it would be Luke, uh, either in, in, his, in Luke and Acts or in Hebrews. But uh, we can spend them just real quickly, it won't take long, get through these. Luke one sixty-two. <laughs> they made signs to his father if if he should call him that, right? Because um, remember he can't he can't talk. He doubted the angel, he was he was cursed, his voice was taken away. Um, Elizabeth got to dominate the conversation for nine months of her pregnancy. And how fun was that? Um and so the baby is born, the neighbors 
uh, we're talking about what, what the kid's name is going to be. And so it happened on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, no indeed, but he shall be called John. Right? That's what she was told to do. And um, so they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to if he wanted to be called that, right? And it's just utter skepticism, right? Utter doubt, utter, there's no way in the world, you couldn't possibly want to name this kid John, right? And, uh, and then he gets his voice back, right? Well, he, makes, he gets a tablet and then he writes it out, his name is John, and, and then, then he gets his voice back. So that's, that's the expression there. In Acts 8.31, almost done here, hang with me. Acts 8.31, more skepticism. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch's in the chariot and Philip runs up to him and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I? You know, And he said, well, how could I if not someone guides me? Right? And he's so skeptical about that. He is so, I mean, it's an if that really expects no, no possible answer. Right? How am I going to understand this if, if no one explains it to me? And he's, remember, he's on his way out of town as this happens. And so it's like, you know, how disappointed was he the whole time he was in Israel? And um, anyways, there's a lot of skepticism there. So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And Philip uh, preaches Christ from Isaiah 53. Um, Acts 17, 18 and 27. Acts 17, um, 18. What would this idle babbler wish to say? And uh, it's just, uh, it's a skeptical thing if he should say. Uh, what would this idle battle, babbler if he should say something? You know, I doubt it would be worth listening to. <laughs> Verse 27. Um, God is nearby, He's knowable, it, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him. Not likely. Okay, What are a bunch of Gentile pagans going to do? How are they going to find God? And then finally Acts 20.16 Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. He was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible, not likely and probably a waste of time. Um, if possible, he might make it to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Okay? Yeah, it's still an if, but talking to those Ephesians elders is going to take time and it's going to slow things down. Anyway, so there you have it. You've had your Greek lesson on conditional clauses, first, second, third, fourth classes. We'll get back on Sunday and we'll pick up uh, the assumptions now. We're going to assume four things. Assuming four things that there's any comfort in Christ, right? We're going to assume that. Even the smallest amount, we're going to assume that. And uh, we'll assume three other things. And then with those four things being assumed, then we're going to complete Paul's joy, okay? Which also has four things. And, and I don't think that's an accident. So, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this study. Father, help us to be diligent in our studies so that we can understand it better. The more we understand it, the better we can live it. And uh, Father, I just thank you for being faithful. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.